Well, y'all came back. That's a good sign. <laughs> we'll see after this week. All right. Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it to 2 Corinthians. Uh, that's where we're at. That's in the, that's in the New Testament. Um, and while we're doing that, I don't know which, where to talk. That one's red. I'm going to go with that one. Um, if, you're, if, if you are uh, watching this morning on our live stream, we are so glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, but I want to encourage you uh, in a particular direction. Um, if, if you're watching because, you know, you're traveling, you're out, man, it's so great to still, isn't it great to be able to engage with the congregation, your home church, while, while traveling? Um, if this in some way has become a substitute for you, uh, for actually gathering with God's people and gathering together in, in this group, I would, I would encourage you to, uh, to rethink that. Um, and I think a great example of that is what we saw earlier with our Advent candle um, lighting. The church is a family. We are a family. And as a family, no matter what your stage of life, no matter where you're at, it's, it, we, we are a family together. And it's very hard to be a family together when we're apart. And so we would love to have you come back or, um, or come for the first time. We'd love, love to see you, okay? All right, back to the rest of us. So we are in our... Um, we're technically in the third week of Advent, but I wasn't here the first week. So we're, we're on the second week of this particular walk through these different ideas. We've been taking our cue from the Christmas hymn, Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor, if you're familiar with that. And what we're doing in this is we're, we're using that to help us understand why this entire season even exists. Like why? I mean, and we all know the right answer, right? Well, Jesus came to save us from our sins. I know, but like, Christmas at some point can be so saccharine, right? Prettied up, uh, made to look like a Norman Rockwell painting instead of what it really is. And so we're taking these weeks to dig into what, what is the mission at the heart of this incarnation. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the one who was powerful omnipotent, in fact, that he became vulnerable. He was powerful beyond all imagining. He became vulnerable for our sake, for our flourishing. And this week, we literally look at the title of that hymn to see the one who was rich becoming poor for our sake. So if you have your place in 2 Corinthians, I believe the text will be behind me as well. I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we stand under that authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 8 and 9, God's word for us. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is God's word given so that you and I would flourish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we need to hear from you, whether we have walked with you for as long as we can remember or we are walking into this place not, not really knowing anything about you. We need you, we need to hear your gospel, and so we ask that your grace would be upon us this morning. Would you speak to us? Would you use this passage to not only challenge us, but to shape us? Don't let us leave this room without being changed by you. We're desperate for that. We long for it, so we long for your presence. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. 
So Christmas is the, before I even get into that, can I just say like everyone sitting down is so different for me because the church I came from, we met in a gym with creaky metal chairs. So it was like this, as everyone sat down, I'm like, did anyone even move? It's so nice and quiet in here. I like it. Um, Anyway, so uh, Christmas is the season of giving, right? We hear that all the time. Season of giving. It's often used as a prelude for some advertisement, right? For a product that we aren't likely to buy, but because it's the season of giving, we're going to buy it. That's what we do. So it's often used as a manipulative tool, right? Christmas is the season of giving becomes, here's why you should spend money on my product. You ever ask yourself why it is that it's a season of giving? What is meant by that? Like, is it, is it just a throwaway line meant to manipulate us into buying gifts for those who don't really need them? I mean, let's be honest. Or does it actually speak to something, something that's beyond the desire for us to feel generous and special by getting the right gift? Well, Christmas is the season of giving, and it is the season of giving because of what we're going to see today. And what we're going to see today is that the one who came is both the giver, but he's also the gift. And as always, well, at least since I started coming, so as the last two weeks, there's an outline in your bulletin in case you want to use that, okay? So let me just say this as we get started. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're watching us online, and uh, you're like, uh, let me, I don't know how you would have found us, but you were like, let me check out this thing. Um, If you're visiting in one way or the other, I have just confirmed every suspicion you've ever had about church, right? Because here, you show up, and the day that, the week that you show up, here we are talking about money, this passage is unabashedly about money. It is. And I know that's hard for a lot of us, right? I know that's hard for a lot of us um, for a bunch of reasons. Because we've seen abuses. Because, um, you know, we've, we've seen men uh, stand up using the name of Jesus to really become their Ponzi scheme and get rich off of the poverty of others. And, uh, and also because of a cultural mindset, if we're being honest, that no one can really say anything about what we do with our money, right? But, and this is really important, Christianity, if you're new to Christianity, Christianity is not a religion in the sense of it is this little part of your life that you keep over here, what we call the spiritual part of our life. And then we do the rest of our week and, and, and all the other stuff that we do. Christianity actually is full orb, that it speaks to every aspect of our life and our living. And so if that is true with something like our sexuality, it's also going to be true with how we engage with our finances, right? And though some of you are thinking, I can't believe he's talking about this in his second week with us. Isn't he supposed to butter us up a little bit more? It's just what came next. I don't know what to tell you. So here we are. Christianity speaks to our whole life. And today it happens to deal with our money. So let's, let's dig into this letter, okay? So um, this letter, uh, 2 Corinthians, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, it is the second letter that the Apostle Paul, one of the early Christian leaders, wrote to a church in Corinth that he had planted, um, that he had started in, in, in the ancient world, Corinth is in the middle of two major trade routes, which means that Corinth 
um, is one of these places, in fact, one of the only places in the ancient world where upward mobility was possible. Um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a city full of um, uh, intellectual pursuits because it was a college town. Um, and, and here was a place where, uh, where people could go and be nothing but become a big deal. And Paul, if you're not familiar with him, Paul was one of these guys I probably would never invite to a party uh, because he was super, super intense. Like before he became a Christian, he was really intense about destroying Christianity. Like, I'm going to walk for 30 miles to go do this. Most of us won't walk for, you know, 30 feet to go do something. He'll walk for 30 miles. And then after he became a Christian, he became, all of that intensity, God didn't do away with it. He actually just moved it. So now it's, first it was focused in having to destroy Christianity. Now it's focused on having to build it. Um, and, And so in this section of Paul's second letter to this church, He's giving instructions for a collection, a collection of money for the members of the congregation in Jerusalem. There had been a famine, uh, you know, a famine in the land, and it's not like, it's not like today, right? It's not like America, where if there's a famine, uh, you know, our crops aren't doing well, that's all right, we import from somewhere else, or we have such a huge um, geographic landmass that somewhere there's something growing well, or we could just go to the grocery store. No, no, no. The congregation in Jerusalem, they were in such a poor state that one of the things the Apostle Paul wanted to do was to show the unity of this new thing called the church that had both Jewish people and Gentiles in it. And he wanted to do that by saying, these Gentile believers are going to help you by providing relief for you. So he's gathering this money. In other words, he's fundraising. He's fundraising. And he's fundraising so that this church would give above and beyond the giving that they are already doing to support their local congregation. Does that make sense? Okay. So then that's the matter that he's doing. Now let's look at the motive. Look down at verse 8. He says this. I'm not giving a command, but instead I am testing the genuineness of your love through the earnestness of others. Now, first off, Paul says he's not giving them a command. Um. Technically, he's not, okay? He could. He started the church. He's got cachet with them. Um, he, he's obviously an apostle, which that may not mean much to us today, but then it was like this huge deal that he had authority, spoke for the risen Jesus. He had the authority to give a command, but he doesn't. Uh, and, and so I want you to kind of flag that file away. We'll come back to it in a second. But instead, what he says is, I'm, gonna t- I'm testing the genuineness of your love. Now, you know how that works, right? It works like this. You and I can say that we are all about X, right? Man, I love this ministry. I love these people. I love doing it. And someone says, oh, great, you love it. How much can I put you down for? And we go, oh, well, maybe not that much, right? He's saying, I'm going to test the genuineness of your love. You say that you love the church, the body of Christ, that you love Jesus, that you love the things that he loves. Great. How much can I put you down for? Do you, do you see that? And this is something that we, we tend to, uh, we, you know, we see this in the church and it freaks us out. But do you understand that, like, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, gave very few barometers for one's spiritual life, Right? But one of them that he did give is he said, 
where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. That's a terrifying statement, isn't it? Anyone want to test their spirituality by opening up their bank statement? Where, not, and then it's like, well, Rick, I have a mortgage to pay. I know, that's not what it's talking about. Jesus isn't saying, where, does, where do you spend the most money? What he's saying is, where does your money flow the most freely? Where does it just kind of, it'll just go. He says, huh? maybe that's a good indicator of where your heart is. And that's what Paul's kind of doing too. And then he continues, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop there, because remember, Paul is raising money. <clears throat> he's a leader in this church. Now he's moved on, but they would still recognize him as such. He planted, he started this church. He has authority, and he can utilize that authority, and he has in the past. But here, he's not saying, so I command you, put aside some money on the first day of the week. It's not what he's saying. Instead, what he does is, he looks at the reason to give being based in the grace of God. Now think about that for a minute. Because again, if you've, if, if, you know, you've given up on church and you're, for whatever reason you're coming back, or, or maybe, you, maybe you're thinking about giving up on church, right? All those suspicions that you have about pastors just trying to get at your money, Paul's just put a little, I don't know, dent in that? Because Paul seems to think that what makes you and I generous isn't guilt, it's grace. That what makes a generous person is not having the heavy laid on them. It's in fact having a burden removed. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now grace is a churchy word and even for those of us who have been in the church a long time, we probably have grown so used to it that we miss it. But Paul gives us the definition very clearly. Look down at verse 9 because he does so by reminding us of what it means to be. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though being rich. Now stop there. Because you, if you have a Bible, if you're using your Bible, go ahead and underline that word being. Because that is really, really important. And it's something we can skip over quickly because none of us liked ninth grade grammar. Right? And if you're in ninth grade grammar, I'm sorry. We, none of us liked it. You'll move on too. But here it's very, very important. Okay? What Paul is saying is that Jesus being rich... And, and, and when he says that, what he's talking about is a continual state of his existence. That Jesus is in a continual state of richness. Now, what does that mean? Well, what Paul's talking about is what we looked at last week in John's Gospel. That, that Jesus exists as God. Now, some of you will remember from last week that John's Gospel begins by saying that Jesus is God, but also with God. And so that gets to... This, this complexity that Christians have that's unique to Christianity, that God is both singular and he's one in essence, but he's three in persons, okay? It's not just a math problem that's hard to balance. It, it, it's something that's really, really awesome. I wish I had more time to talk about it. But that Jesus existed from eternity past in a state of wealth continually. Now, does Paul mean by that material wealth? I mean, since he created all things, I guess you could say that. But that's not really what he's getting at. This is a different kind of wealth. He's using riches almost metaphorically here. Because think about it. When you and I drive past the Powerball billboard, not now, but it's probably like, what, 30 million? Pfft, 
Not even worth it. But when it's like two billion, what you and I are thinking about as we dream, and maybe I'm the only one who does this, I do this, dream about, man, what would it be like to win that much money? And of course, it always begins, I mean, I'd tithe first, of course. <laughs> ah, all right. And then what we do when we're dreaming about all that money is not having money, right? As if we're like Scrooge McDuck swimming in our money bin. That's not what, what we're talking about. We're talking about what it can give us. What the money can give us. Some of us that's security and safety. Others of us that's satisfaction. But from start to finish, what that money would give for us, that is what it means to be wealthy. That we can get whatever we want. And in this state, like when Paul says that he is rich, what he is talking about is that Jesus exists perpetually in a state of fullness. That there is no poverty there. There's no lack. Everything is fullness. And when the Bible speaks of God, it speaks of someone who is perfect, who has all power, who needs nothing. Okay? Now that's important, so stay with me. Because when the Bible tells the story of God creating the world, it does, it, it tells the story not because God was lacking in something. Right? Listen. I have counseled enough marriages for whom the idea of having a child was to put a band-aid over a bad marriage, right? I'm sure that's not true of any of us in here, but it happens, right? The idea of, of starting something new is because we're restless. The idea of, of adding something to our lives is because we feel a lack. That is not why God created God created not because he needed something, but because he wanted other th- others, other things, other uses to experience his fullness. It would be like a couple going, our love in our marriage is so awesome and so amazing, we want to bring another human into it. Let's have a baby. Not because we need something, but because this is really great. How can we bring another person into that? And so Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, are thinking, how can we create so that there can be others experiencing this, they can overflow into others, okay? Totally and fully fulfilled apart from creation. You with me? Because that's Jesus. But Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus being, he also talks about ours. See, Paul's going to say at the end of this verse, that Jesus made us rich. And that implies something about us, doesn't it? To say that Jesus did something that made us rich implies that you and I are in poverty. See, this entire verse seems to hinge on this unspoken reality of our own poverty. But why? Well, the answer to that is actually, again, found in the story the Bible tells us. God was fil- you know, in a state of fullness in himself, Completely fulfilled, but created. He created us, and he created us to to, um, both kind of execute his just and loving rule over all of creation and to enjoy that fellowship, that that loving relationship that he enjoyed in himself to, to be able to experience that with him. But something happened. You and I believed a lie that God didn't intend for our good. That he was holding us back from fullness. 
that we could actually have fullness apart from him. We could be like him and having no need. And so we turned from him and we betrayed him. And the Bible calls that sin. And I know that for many of us, sin is about breaking rules. But ultimately and fully, sin is about breaking not rules, but a relationship. It's about breaking a relationship, a relationship with a person, that person that we were made for. And when we did that, we became guilty because every betrayal brings guilt. You know this and so do I. But we also entered into a state of corruption. Now, some of us are getting skeptical right now, but stay with me and hear me out. Because we left that fullness, that richness that we were made for, and instead sought to find fullness on our own. In fact, the Bible says that now, now we do that simply by nature. That's just what we're born into that. We're born into, I'm going to look out for me. I can find it on my own. I don't need anything. All of us are convinced that we will feel satisfied, that we will feel right, that we feel like we mean something when we have blank. Fill it in. You fill it in for you. It's not the same for everybody. It's what helps us to feel self-righteous. We see somebody else doing it, we're like, what are they doing? Getting that job promotion is not going to make you feel full, but having a good reputation will. Right? That, that's the kind of thing that we do. For some of us, it's relationships. If we're loved, we'll be somebody. For others, it's power. As long as we're in control of situations, we will be satisfied, right? And still others, it's it's what this passage is talking about. It's money. Having enough stored up that's going to keep us safe or give us the satisfaction we crave. And then there are those of us who just want that personal fulfillment. The goal of life is so that I feel that my, my internal reality feels settled. That's what fulfillment really means. Like I'm satisfied. But here's the problem. Anybody there? Anybody find enough of that thing yet? No, of course not. And I know we all convince ourselves. Like we convince ourselves when we're younger, it's going to be when X happens. Then X happens, we go, yeah, but, but this much, this little bit more. And it's always that. It's always this little bit more. It's a little bit more money. It's a little bit more of uh, people loving us. It's a little bit more pleasure. It's, it's always just a little bit more. It's we can't ever find enough. Why? Well, we're stuck seeking fullness in things that can't give it, right? You know, the author C.S. Lewis, he was kind of a big deal uh, for those of you who are into British guys. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that if I find in myself a desire that nothing on this earth seems to satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I must be made for another world. We weren't made to find fullness in things. We were made to find our fullness in the one who is rich. And so here is Paul's position in the position of Christianity. God, who is the creator of all, exists in fullness. He is rich. We, however, because of our sin, of our seeking life apart from God, seeking seeking, uh, our own fullness, are stuck in abject poverty. Constantly seeking fullness in things that cannot satisfy us. Both are about who we are, not so much what we have. You with me? God's richness isn't so much in what he has, it's who he is. Our poverty, not so much in what we have, who we are. 
But here's where Paul speaks of God in action. He speaks of becoming. Look back at verse 9. Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, though being rich, became poor. Now stop there. What is he talking about? Well, simply put, this is the story of Christmas. This is, this, is, this is the story of God not being okay with the way things were and not wanting to leave us in our sin and so promising to make things better, promising to fix us, which is crazy because he's the offended one. He's the betrayed one. Yet he was the one who said he would fix what we, what we ruined, and that's what we celebrated at Christmas. Jesus became poor. Now, what that means and I know, listen, if, if you're a theology person and you're into that stuff, you know that there's this whole like, group of theories that connect to this, of Jesus emptying himself. Uh, the, the fancy word for that is canonic. You can lay that out at a party. People, well, they'll think you're a nerd. But um, this idea that Jesus somehow stopped having all of this good stuff and, and, and God stuff and went with being totally, he just kind of laid that all aside, that's not true, okay? That's not true. What what Paul is talking about became is he's talking about entering into our poverty. That word became in the original means something that happened at one point in time. He's talking about God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ. He went from abundant fullness to entering into our poverty. You see, the, the problem is, is that we have so romanticized Christmas that we've missed what this means. Do you realize, like, one, do you realize that, like, that song, In the Bleak Midwinter, how funny is that? There's no snow in Jer Anyway, um, but, like, have you realized that most of our Christmas songs and our Christmas stories and all this stuff, like, we, we just don't even think about how horrible they are, right? Like, here's a woman, a girl, a girl, right? About to give birth, needs some place to give birth. People in their rooms are like, nah, man. No, I'm good. Go find yourself somewhere else. So she has to go to a cave. A cave. It's not a nice little barn. That would be bad enough, right? It's not a barn. It's a cave. And, in the, in, and, and listen, nowadays, like, you can't get three feet into a hospital without having to sanitize something, right? She's putting her baby in a feeding trough, In the straw. Straw is not comfy. Like, it's itchy. I grew up on, you know, my, my buddy had a horse farm. We, we threw bales around. It looked like it got in a fight with a pack of cats. Like, straw is not fun. And this was because no one cared. No one cared. Jesus, the Lord of life, the God of the universe, is born into the world in a cave because no one would give up their room for a woman in labor. The God of the universe placed in a feeding trough and wrapped in rags. Rags. Jesus entered into the emptiness of our world and our existence. But he didn't do it because he didn't have anything better to do. See, Paul, Paul goes on. He says this, that through his poverty we might be made rich. Here it is. Here it is. And so again, if you're new to Christianity, like, listen up, because this, this is going to... Sets the entire stage. The logic of Christianity, the only way Christianity makes sense, okay, um, is, is in the concept of substitution. The entire logic of Christianity is substitution. We mess things up when we sought to substitute ourselves for God. 
And so God fixes it by coming and substituting himself for us. You see that? The rich one comes into our poverty and carries our poverty so that we might become rich. He's rich but becomes poor so that we who are poor might become rich. Okay, so how does that work? How does that even start? Well, again, this is where the cross comes into play. This is why I said last week, and I'll keep saying it, like you can't have Christmas without the cross. It doesn't make sense. See, all of us through our sin, our our seeking life apart from God, have brought guilt on ourselves. And betrayals always bring guilt. And you know this because you've done it and you've had it done to you. The only question is who will bear that guilt? Will it be the one who was betrayed or will it be the betrayer? This is an important point, so I need, I need you all to check in really quick. Because forgiveness is not pretending that something didn't happen. That's called lying. Forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. It is not pretending that something didn't happen. It's not just waiting long enough that your anger dissipates. It's saying, you don't have to bear the weight of this, because if you did, that's called justice. It's what you deserve. Instead, I will bear it for you. And this is why everything in Christianity hangs on, literally, hangs on that cross. Because on there, Jesus, God the Son, bore our betrayal for us. It's not a math problem. It's not like a, I'll do this and then you'll get this. It's literally him. It's a relational fix. I'm going to bear what you did so that you don't have to. He bore our poverty the death that we should have died. He bore our guilt. He bore his own wrath at, our, at being betrayed. See, God the betrayed one becomes human so that he can bear the guilt that we deserve. He becomes poor so that we might become rich. Now for the why and how we will return to grace. Remember how Paul began this? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? See, friends, grace in the Bible is not a prayer you say before a meal. Uh, it is It is the free favor of God. It means getting something that you did not earn. What have we earned? We've earned our guilt. We've earned our judgment. But out of grace, Jesus became poor to make us rich. Did you notice what Paul wrote? So that through his poverty, he might make you rich. Here's Not make it possible for you to be rich. This was not like up for grabs, like, well, I'm going to come and I'm writing a blank check with my cross and maybe, maybe or maybe not, you'll get to take that up. He's doing this. He's doing this. He made you rich. He takes what we earned and he gives us what he earned. And Paul says, if this is reality, that God and Jesus, though rich, became poor so that through poverty we might become rich, That will become the backbone for the Corinthians' generosity. And now it all comes back to that, doesn't it? All right. Now, 
I want to bring this home to us in two ways this morning because Paul is trying to accomplish something. He is not simply giving us a lesson in what Christianity is all about. He's not simply giving us a theology lesson. We need to understand that almost everything, when you're reading Paul's writings, almost everything he wants us to do as the church, he bases in the person and work of Jesus. It's like, He wants us to love one another. He wants us to live together as a community that's different, but but learning how to live. He says, look at Jesus. Look at what he did. He gave up all of his rights so that we might have them. He wants you to become generous. He says, look at Jesus, who who gave up his, entered into our poverty so that we might become rich. And so first, we need to know the grace. What is it that makes us generous? For some of us, it's guilt, right? We feel moved by that advertisement we saw, that video of starving children somewhere. You know that. That is exactly why they do that. You know that, right? And it works. It motivates us a little bit. But Paul is saying that generosity is less about what you have and more about who you are. He says that what makes us generous is not a social conscience or a heightened awareness or emotional manipulation. It is the belief in the fact that we are made right with God and made full through faith in Jesus Christ alone. What do you think about that? Because most of us, if if we're being honest, probably think, yeah, that can't possibly work. Well, follow me because it does. Generosity is a willingness to give away our money, our time, ourselves but you and I will never give away what we think is going to bring us life we will never give away something that we think is going to be what makes things right for us you will never be free to give away everything if you think there is anything that everything can give you right you'll never be free to give stuff away if you think that thing is going to do stuff for you We aren't generous with our money, with anything, because we think on some level that our satisfaction is wrapped up in that money. The same with our time, the same with our lives. But if we truly believe that our fullness has already been provided for in Jesus, that there's nothing we did to get it, which means there's nothing we can do to lose it, then all of that stuff loses its power. We can give our money away because it ultimately can't give us anything. But so long as we think that our money or how we use it, probably more likely, will bring us satisfaction, will make us somebody, whatever, we'll never be free to be a truly generous person. Do you see that? Because generosity is not so much about how much you have. It's more about who you are. And likewise, if we think that our giving makes us right with God, appeases our conscience, right, increases our image, whatever, then we're not being generous. So you aren't giving to seek the flourishing of another. We're giving to get. It's economics. And you and I will always give what we care less about to get something we care more about. Right? Like, I don't care as much about my money as I do my reputation. I don't care as much about my money as I do my eternal destiny. So I can give that away. Some of us are like, eternal destiny, I want what I want right now. Yeah, that's why you won't give it away too. But if you believe that there is nothing you can do to take away your guilt, 
No image you can put on to actually cover your failures. But instead that those things that you are looking for have been provided in Jesus. And are freely given to you if you receive him by faith. And you will actually be free to give without worrying about what you get in return. It no longer matters. The grace of Jesus really does change everything. So lastly, do you feel free to give? I mean, notice I didn't say, do you feel like you have enough to give? I mean, do you feel free? Do you feel free? They, they, that you could just do it because the one who talks about generosity or even grace but still hoards their stuff and zealously guards their lifestyle, Paul would say maybe you should question whether or not you've known the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that might sound harsh, but that's his warning, right? That's why Paul doesn't command them. The equation is simple. You don't give to get God's favor. Nor does God not care if you give or not. See, those are the two sides we normally go on. We're either going to do it because God says to do it, and if we don't, we're going to get squished. Or God doesn't really care about anything. We can do what we want. I'm wearing my Jesus suit. Zip! He doesn't see me anyway. Like, it's not the way it works. It's actually more radical than both. Because if you have God's favor in Jesus, then you'll want to give. So do you want to? See, if it's the experience of God's grace that makes us generous, then friends, Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the planet. So let me make this as clear as we possibly can make it. Because so often this does not get said enough. Greed and Christian discipleship are as out of place with one another as sexual immorality and Christian discipleship. You with me? We need to understand that because you and I, of course we don't think we're greedy. I get it. But you and I tend to give passes to certain things. And depending on your generation, it's different. Right? Like there's one generation, it's like sex and substances. Those are the things that God cares the most about. And then for another generation, it's no, 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 no. Economics and, and, and uh, environment. And it's like, like, come on. There are no passes. Greed and Christian discipleship are as out of place together as sexual immorality and discipleship. The problem is that sexual issues are easier for us to spot. And not a person in this room thinks they're greedy. Including me. But we probably all are. Are you giving your time, your treasure, your talents to see others flourish spiritually, physically, emotionally, etc.? And listen... I'm, I'm talking primarily to Christians right now. If you're not a Christian in the room, you just get to listen in. Go, whew, glad that didn't have to do with me. <laughs> we'll get the other stuff together first, and then we'll talk about this, all right? What Paul is calling, to, calling us to here is not giving our leftovers. He is calling us, you and me, to sacrificially give of our resources for the sake of others, like Jesus did. Now, that doesn't mean giving to such an extent that we make ourselves a burden on others, right? Like, I can't afford... I can't afford for my needs, but what it does mean is that maybe over lunch this afternoon, we need to have a thoughtful conversation about what we actually need. Maybe it's different than what we have or what we want.
If you do feel free this morning, but just don't have ideas of where to give, and I know, listen, Rick, you haven't given us a thoroughgoing understanding of Christian generosity. That's not what this was meant to be. (laughs) It's just meant to push on us in a given area, right? Because of Advent, because of Christmas. But if you're if you feel free, but you don't have ideas, let me let me give you some options. And this is super easy because I'm brand new here, so I can say this, and it's not like I have a vested interest, right? This is great. Steve got up last week and talked about our Christmas offering. There's a lot that we would love to be able to do with that. You can give to that. You could certainly give to that. Um, There is, listen, um, (laughs) there's another place, like we we would love, I think, as, as leadership to be able to pay off this property so that we could go and free up those resources to do more ministry, to bless more people. We'd love to do that. You could do that too. You know, our deacons have, have uh, uh, an entire fund that they use to help people inside and outside of the church who are in need. I don't know if you knew that. You can give to that. And you don't have to give to the church, Right? Remember, Paul's talking about something that's over and above what we do to support our local church. We're talking about sacrificial stuff. There's plenty of people in this room who rely on support raising for, for, for their livelihood because they, they work at you know, one of the various ministries that calls Orlando home. Maybe it's one of our world missionaries. Maybe there's, but you can, you can give. Or, you know, I think we've still got families that need to be adopted for this Christmas, right? Megan, or you can, yeah. I'd love to have you do that. If you, if, if you just need a target, you're like, Rick, I feel it, but I just need a target. We can give you one. And if you don't feel free to give, may I suggest that with Paul, you look again at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because my friend, if you have Jesus, there's nothing that stuff can give you. And if you don't have Jesus, that stuff can't give you anything. Not the stuff that you actually long for. This Christmas, let's see the season of giving for what it is, a time to reflect on the one who gave us everything so that we could be then like him and give away anything. Would you pray with me? The hard words, Jesus, uh, hard words for me too, hard words for all of us. Some of us right now are just mad. We're just mad. Some of us are mad because... Uh, A pastor said this, and it makes us mad when pastors say this. Some of us are mad because we know what you're asking of us. Others of us feel guilty. (laughs) Even though the motivation for generosity is grace, we, we just feel guilt. Because it's easier for us to feel that than to feel your grace. Some of us are just excited and have been just looking for you to give us permission to be generous as if we needed an extra push. In any case, some of us are just still trying to figure out whether any of this is true. (laughs) Would you meet us? Would you, by your spirit, move us out? That it might be through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might become a generous people and so radically generous that people would look at UPC and go, what is going on? That these folks would give their lives like not for our glory, but because it points the only one that could possibly do that is you. So we ask you to do this for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name.